Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus. Stay chill or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New York Institute for the Humanities podcast, now coming to you from the New York Public Library. I'm Robert Boynton. Eyal Press is the author of Absolute Convictions, Beautiful Souls, and most recently, Dirty Work, Essential Jobs and the Hidden Toll of Inequality in America, which won the 2022 Hillman Prize. That fall, he had a conversation with Eliza Griswold, author of The Tenth Parallel and Amity and Prosperity, which won the 1999 Pulitzer Prize. To get to Dirty Work, I think the first thing I should probably do is explain what that term means in my book, because obviously it's it's a very well-known colloquial expression that refers to just an unpleasant job or an unpleasant task of some kind. And I think most of us think of that as a sort of physically dirtying job, something like collecting the garbage off the streets. But the term also has a slightly different meaning in the social sciences, and it can be traced back to Everett Hughes, which is, which is the person with whom my, my book begins. Hughes was a sociologist at the University of Chicago, kind of a f- forgotten figure in some ways, even though he influenced people like Irving Goffman and David Reisman. He, after World War II, spent a semester in 1948 teaching abroad, and where he taught was Frankfurt, Germany, right in the shadow of um, World War II, obviously, and and the atrocities that took place in Germany and the Holocaust. And Hughes was a provocateur. And while he was there, he spent uh, most of his time with professors, writers, fellow intellectuals, sort of cosmopolitan people, people who are not supporters of the Nazi party, but who had stayed in Germany as the Nazis came to power. He keeps a diary, and in this diary, he records interactions with people in which he asks them, what do you make of what happened during World War II under the Nazis? And part of what he hears is actually exactly what you would expect. Um, In particular, one evening he's at an architect's house and the architect tells him, well, I'm ashamed for my people uh, whenever anybody brings it up. But remember, we had no choice. We had to go along. There was no room for dissent. And then the architect proceeds to say, but you know, the Jews, they were a problem. And something had to be done to settle this problem. He says, you know, he's not saying what the Nazis did to settle it was right. But, you know, the Jews were taking all the good jobs. They gathered in these ghettos. He sort of defines them as an out group. And Hughes sort of keeps hearing 
this sort of on the one hand, on the other hand, from the people he meets. And out of this comes first a lecture that he gives in, in Montreal at McGill University, and then an essay. And the essay is titled Good People and Dirty Work. And in that essay, Hughes basically posits that dirty work is, in a sense, a relational thing, that what happened under the Nazis had not the explicit support of people like the, like the folks he talked to while he was in Frankfurt, but what he called an unconscious mandate, that to some extent, people like the architect were happy enough just to leave the problem to someone else to resolve without having to think about it too much. And so he publishes this essay, and immediately it creates that there are soci- there's a sociologist and others who write in saying, you know, objecting to what he's saying about the Nazis. But what to me is most fascinating about this essay is that Hughes didn't mean it as a commentary on Nazi Germany. He meant it, and he said this in, in his response to the people who wrote in, he meant it as a warning to his fellow North Americans that there's dirty work in every society. And you know we have to look at what kind of mandate it has from people who would never want to do it themselves, but might be happy enough to leave it for others to do and to kind of push it into the shadows, to dissociate themselves from it, meanwhile, to have it go on. What I think is so interesting is that this whole idea of good people and dirty work is actually much more relevant to a country like the United States, to a democratic society, than it is to a dictatorship or to Nazi Germany. Because the Nazis were going to do what they were going to do regardless of whether they had an unconscious mandate from people like that architect, from the quote-unquote good people. But in a democratic society, there are ways that people can have a say over what is done in their name through politics, through protest, through other means and mechanisms by voting. And so that sort of core idea is the point of the of departure for my book. I decided, let's take a look at the kind of dirty work that goes on in the United States. How does it happen? Under what circumstances? And who is it delegated to? And I think that's the other central piece of the book. Aside from kind of wanting to look at different cases of dirty work, I wanted to say something about the way it is organized and delegated. The book begins with an epigraph from James Baldwin, and Baldwin wrote uh, in one of his books, the powerless must do their own dirty work, the powerful have it done for them. He obviously wasn't referring to the kind of dirty work I'm talking about, but in a sense, that very much applies, I think, to the dirty work in the United States. And the examples I'm thinking of and that I, that I go into in depth and that Eliza and I can talk about, the dirty work of running America's prison system, which is the largest prison system in the entire world. The dirty work of carrying out targeted assassinations in our never-ending wars. The dirty work of manning the kill floors in industrial slaughterhouses. In each of those cases, it is, in fact, the powerless who are delegated the bulk of the work. These are not jobs that are sort of randomly distributed. They're certainly not jobs that people with power and prestige and a lot of choices will do. And in fact, the privileged and, and the powerful in our society not only don't do these jobs, they don't have to see these jobs because dirty work is, in all of those cases and in others I look at, it's 
geographically isolated. Inequality also shapes where it takes place, and it's hidden from view. So on the one hand, you have a society that, or at least a part of the society, that can go on with its life without feeling in any way connected to this work, even as it is relied upon, tacitly condoned. I think there is dirty work in so many different facets of our society. On the other hand, you have the people who do it, people from towns, uh, high school graduates from uh, deindustrialized towns, uh, where there aren't a lot of choices and opportunities, and where it so happens a lot of the prisons and jails in the United States have been built. Undocumented immigrants who work in slaughterhouses, women, people of color, people who, generally speaking, have less opportunity, less education, and who end up, in effect, dirtying their hands on behalf of the rest of society. So that's a kind of thumbnail sketch of the book and the central ideas in it, and I'd love to start uh, the conversation. Hi, Al. That was just an amazing and comprehensive introduction. Thank you so much for it. First and most importantly, congratulations. This book is so comprehensively reported. It's so beautifully written. It's really a pleasure on the page. And I think for those of us who write about social justice issues, one of the prevalent questions is how do we get people to read things they don't want to read? And one of the ways we do that is through absolutely stellar storytelling. And you do that in every way. Sometimes we say in classrooms that no, you know, no nonfiction can be better than the reporting that supports it on the page. And that's true. But I would add to that that this book is so deeply thought and no book can be better than the thinking that supports it on the page. How did you come to this topic? And how do you see it as connected to your other work, which has been about moral courage and people who don't go along? The the last book I did, Beautiful Souls, was actually about people who are in a variety of situations where they are asked to follow unjust orders or to do something that is clearly objectionable, and they end up refusing. So it's it's a book about moral courage and, and people who don't dirty their hands and keep keep them clean. And I don't think I was consciously thinking, I want to write the opposite of that next time. But when I was reporting that book, I did keep thinking about those other stories. And in part because I heard them. I remember in particular when I was in the Balkans, one section of Beautiful Souls is about a Serb who ends up risking his own life to help Croats escape from a detention camp outside of Vukovar. And I spent some time in Vukovar and talked to a lot of people who didn't resist, as as most people didn't. One night in particular at a bar, just hearing these men who were 19 and 20 years old at the time talk about essentially the ethnic cleansing that went on and that they had taken part in and the way that the town split. And on one level, I felt this impulse that I think anyone who reads my book will feel at times, the impulse to judge. How could you do that? What is it that in human nature that that leads us to, to go along in those situations? At the same time, I felt an uncomfortable identification with them because the people in Beautiful Souls are exceptions. They are ordinary in some ways. They're by no means saintly figures, but their actions in those moments are exceptional. I think I got more interested in 
the folks who kind of got swept along, not, if you will, the willful executioners, more the conflicted insiders who felt some ambivalence, and that is very much reflected in dirty work. None of the people I write about in this book are gung-ho to be doing what they're doing. They all feel a certain amount of unease and ambivalence and discomfort, and yet they do go along. So again, there's, I think, two things I felt, and I think hopefully readers will feel, which is this question of how do we judge people in these situations? And where it led me was to think not just about individuals in these situations, but about the social forces surrounding them. First chapter of the book is about a mental health aide in a prison. Her name is Harriet Kriskovsky, and she witnesses horrible things. She works at this prison and discovers that mentally ill incarcerated people are being denied meals. And then she discovers that some of them are being locked inside of a scalding shower. And she learns that Darren Rainey, a prisoner at the facility where she's working, was killed in that shower in the most brutal possible fashion. And as you read about Harriet, just hearing that description, you think, why wouldn't she report this? She's a mental health professional. She needs to say something. But she didn't report it. And no one on the, on the staff at that prison reported it. The reason they didn't report it is because of those structural conditions. They felt, as mental health aides in all jails and prisons feel, they felt beholden to security. Harriet relied on these officers to protect her, actually, when she was in the rec yard. And when she had challenged them earlier on a very minor matter, they started disappearing and leaving her alone and basically sending her a message, don't defy us, don't report what we're doing. And so that's one of the structural factors that sort of shapes this dirty work. Another is that jails and prisons are the largest mental health institutions in our society. That's not Harriet's fault. It's not actually the guard's fault. It is our collective responsibility and, and I would say abdication of responsibility. After deinstitutionalization, we have effectively relied on the carceral system to warehouse people with severe mental illnesses in astonishing numbers and to brutal effect. So anyway, that case and, and the others, to go back, is an attempt to kind of look at I think these gray actors who get caught in these systems and have really bad choices. And in a sense, to expand the circle of responsibility beyond just them to readers, the general public, politicians, other sort of forces that have created the conditions they work under. I mean, I kept thinking, reading it, you know, there's so much gray actors, yeah. And also, agency is absent in so many of these cases and with so many of these jobs. I kept thinking, you know, you focus on drone operators, you focus on meatpacking, people who work basically in slaughterhouses, and you focus on energy workers. And, you know, the last two of those made me think a lot about time in Appalachia and how I remember one pork farmer, the president of the Washington County Pork Association, saying to me, you know, there's so much judgment that comes from who we might call bubble people, right? About like, how could you sign this gas lease? How could you farm pigs? And the truth is for people living in these communities, the hypocrisy of that, people who live in the bubble, you don't wanna know where your meat comes from. You don't wanna know where your energy come from. You wanna flick on the lights and not think about the systemic nature of it. So I think that's just one 
completely fascinating aspect of this book is to go spend time with people who are on the front lines of those industries that we rely on without wanting to. So let's talk a little bit about why did you focus on energy, the drone operators, as well as the meatpacking? Why those three kinds of jobs? I think there are two types of dirty work in the book. The first two cases, the prison example I I just gave, and the drone operators who carry out targeted assassinations. Both of those are state functions, even though there are private contractors and private companies that are involved as I talk about. So to some extent, it doesn't take that much to think about the point Hughes was making, that this is unfolding to some extent with some public legitimacy. And to be sure, there are debates and, and differences and disagreements about whether those things should be happening. But it's been a good while uh, that we've had drone strikes and very little debate about it. We spent decades building up this prison system. It did not happen overnight. It did not happen without popular support, Democrats and Republicans. So the first half of the book really is about these state functions. The second half of the book, which you alluded to some of the cases, both the slaughterhouses and also the energy industry, and I also look at at a little bit at the tech industry, is very different because it's all happening in private companies, but it's connected to consumer demand, to the products that we use, to products produced that are pretty central to the American lifestyle. In the meatpacking section of the book, I'm looking at poultry slaughterhouses. Poultry is America's most popular meat. Consumption and demand has grown exponentially in the last 30 or 40 years. And the conditions under which the workers toil very much reflects that demand. The conditions are physically brutal because the line speeds go faster and faster. As those conditions have become more difficult and more strenuous and more injurious, fewer and fewer native-born Americans work in the industry. It's an industry dominated, as is all of meatpacking, by immigrants, many of them undocumented. And so it it definitely relates to, to what you said about a product supplied that is all over the country and that people can enjoy, but that is produced under socially invisible conditions. And with energy, it's both similar and different. I looked at offshore oil rigs, and there, what I kept hearing, and particularly off the, in the Gulf, both from the roustabout I wrote about in depth and from other people in that industry is, yeah, everybody's quick to judge us who lives in the Northeast and you know lives in California and they want to keep their coast clean, but the demand for this product is not slackening. The, the sort of fossil fuels that, that are burned, the natural gas uh, in, in the case of fracking. In all of these different ways, I think it becomes really difficult to say that this work is unconnected to broader both social and political decisions and to, uh, to all of us. You point out in the book that it's certainly not a Democrat-Republican matter when it comes to energy. Under Obama, the U.S. becomes the world's largest petroleum producer. If you combine oil and natural gas, all the while touting the proper language about climate change without doing the one thing we need to do immediately, which is obviously get all fossil fuels. So I think that's so apt. And along those lines, Ayal, in these communities, 
less so in the slaughterhouses, but certainly in others. Political disenfranchisement has led people to a certain kind of hostility toward the liberal elite, if we say, toward the coastal elite. Can you talk about that a little bit? Did you get into it with these guys about their political views? How do you see the link between political disenfranchisement and these jobs? It's a great question. Well, in the, in the case of um, the slaughterhouses, uh, the disenfranchisement is, is, is quite profound because the conditions can be as brutal as they are in part because the people who work in the poultry slaughterhouse I looked at and elsewhere they're afraid if they speak up, not only will they be fired, they could be deported. And in fact, there were raids on meatpacking plants throughout the Trump era, and the message was heard loud and clear. You better keep your head down, do what you're told. In the case of, of this slaughterhouse, doing what you're told not only meant don't unionize, don't complain, don't uh, say anything to your boss. For the women who worked in that plant, it meant don't take bathroom breaks. Again, because the line speeds, it's, it's all about how much is churned out per shift to meet the demands. And there's sort of competitive environment that is also a deeply repressive one. In terms of the oil and energy people, we didn't really talk much about politics. I definitely got that sense you alluded to of this sort of vague resentment of the elites who judge them and without spelling it out, elite probably means uh, liberal people on the coasts. Even more was just this sense of, um, you know, the Stephen uh, Stone, the roustabout I wrote about, you know, he didn't really talk to me about politics, but he did talk. He, by the way, was, was a roustabout on the Deepwater Horizon. So he survived that blast and didn't really have any physical injuries, but was completely shattered, both in terms of just his trust. He had trusted the industry to protect him and his fellow workers. And and after the blast kind of learns that every single corner was cut, their lives really were expendable. But then on a deeper level, just a form of survivor's guilt and sort of relives and, and a form of PTSD. But he didn't really talk about politics, but he did say people like to judge guys like me He's from a small town in Alabama. He gets this job because it pays a lot better than working at the rug plant where everyone else he knows works. They love to judge us, but meanwhile, they're filling up their SUVs. Just kind of threw that in. It's there, even when it's not talked about. It's a combination, I think, of resentment and disenfranchisement that can be mobilized and has been mobilized in in the ways we've seen. In talking about dirty work, it's not all just about soot and coal. I love the Orwell and the use of the Wigan Pier. It's what kind of unseen injuries and marks are left on people. You just mentioned quickly the PTSD, and I think for me that was one of the biggest eye-openers, certainly among drone pilots and energy workers. I, I really hadn't thought about that. Can you talk about... Well, how is one dirtied by this form of work? And, and where do you see those marks being left on people that we have to pay more attention? I think I, I failed to spell this out adequately when I said that the book is about, about inequality. It's really about moral inequality, not economic inequality. Even though economic inequality shapes everything from where dirty work happens to who does it. What I mean by moral inequality are what you just referred to, the kind of moral burdens and emotional hardships that actually doing work that is stigmatized, devalued, and that can cause inner conflict, what that does to people who do it. 
I refer in the book to Richard Sennett's hidden injuries of class, because I think these really are hidden injuries. There's no chart or graph that you can look at that will tell you who is it that is feeling stigma, whose job shatters their dignity or corrodes their self-esteem or causes them to feel morally injured. That's a term that we can talk more about, but basically means doing something that either witnessing or being involved in acts that go against one's core values. All of those burdens come up in the different forms of dirty work that I look at, and they're invisible. You have to sort of dig really deep to get someone to talk about any of that. And it's because there's often shame and discomfort associated with it, it can sort of be pushed aside and glossed over just as this form of work can be pushed aside and kind of ignored. But I think it's as pernicious and debilitating as material disadvantage. I think Biden in his acceptance speech at, at the Democratic Convention said, he talked about his father and said, you know, that his father